You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> okay, this morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you in the pew. And you're welcome um, to take one of those if you don't have your own Bible. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more over the ninety-nine that never went astray." So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amanda. Good morning. morning. Millstones around the neck. We got severed hands and feet, gouged out eyes, a lot of conversation about hell. Sounds like a Mother's Day sermon, no? You know? (laughs) Wow. We should have planned a little bit better on this one. Uh, No, truly, uh, the passage that we get to look at today is a really beautiful picture of God's heart for his kids. And uh, and I want to say to the mothers in the room, happy Mother's Day to you uh, for the ways that you have shown God's heart to your kids. Uh, Mother's Day is a a beautiful opportunity to really honor uh, motherhood. And uh, there's complex emotions around it all the time. But there's something that we want to celebrate about motherhood. Mothers are designed by God as these life givers. You are very much a life giver that you sacrifice your own body, your own energy, your own health. And for all of us in the room, your mothers did this for you to quite literally give you life. And in all of the exhaustion of your own sleep and your own energy and your own resources and your effort and your emotions, you're showing the world what God is like. And he designed motherhood to be that. He is the life giver. 
And through mothers, we understand something of what it means to be sacrificially laying down your life to give and to nurture life in others. And so I want to say thank you to the mothers in our midst and the mothers that are represented by all of us in the room. Really grateful for you and the ways that you image God to all of us. Hey, we also understand that Mother's Day can be an emotionally complex space for so many reasons. For so many reasons. Uh, For some, it's an unfulfilled longing to be a mother, the life stage you're in, or struggles with infertility. For others, it's the loss of a mother, uh, that you've lost your mother. For others, it's a strained relationship with your mother, or you might be a mother with strained relationships with your children. And so there are any number of reasons why a day like today can be full of complex emotions, and we understand that. And we're really grateful that you're here because we feel like over all of it, motherhood isn't ultimate. Motherhood is something created by God to help us understand something about who he is and who he is towards each one of us. Again, that he is the life giver, that he is the one who laid down his own life, who exhausted his own life in his pursuit of giving us life, nurturing our life, and leading us into the life of his kingdom. And so our hope today is that for all of us, as we take time throughout the day, as much as is relevant for you to honor the mothers in our life and around us and in our community, uh, wanted to be something that lifts our attention, both in the beauty of it and the pain and brokenness, to remember God's life-giving, nurturing care for us as his people. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would actually lead us today to understand more about his character towards us, what he's done, his heart towards us as his kids, even in a pretty complex passage. It's a complex passage. There's some truths here. There's some ideas here that are often misunderstood, that are complex. There's some stuff that's heavy and hard to contemplate. Uh, But through all of it, you see God's consistent, faithful heart of love and passion for his kids. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us each to feel that individually today. So would you join me as we pray? Jesus, we come uh, this morning and we want to say thank you for what you've done to give us life. Uh, What you've done to exhaust yourself, to sacrifice and to suffer and to endure so much pain and hardship, not just to give us life, but to continue to nurture and to guide, to convict and to refine, to mature and to develop us as your kids. And we pray you'd help us to have the heart of children before you today. That we wouldn't be like those who continue to try to kind of do our own thing in our own ways according to our own wisdom, but in humility that we'd return again to you today to understand what it means to be your beloved children, to be dependent on you, to be hungry for you, to be desperate for your presence, your provision, your protection, your nearness, your grace, your mercy, your guidance, your life. And so for all the ways that we have turned from you to seek life apart from you, would you help us today to return to you? For those in the room who have never sought life from you, that they've been building life apart from you, maybe hard things happening in their own story that have brought them to this moment today. Would you, in your shepherding love, in your hunger and passion for your kids, would you pursue them and give life today in really beautiful and transformative ways? So would you bring grace into this community today? We need you, Holy Spirit. Work among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to talk about the goat. The goat, the greatest of all time. Let me first talk to you about some stats. Stats. Two NBA titles, follow me, okay? Two NBA titles, two. One NBA MVP, two finals MVPs, one defensive player of the year, and nine, count it, nine scoring titles. Top score in the NBA, nine times, nine times. Those aren't stats of any individual player. If if they were, if they were stats of an individual player, it would be a Hall of Famer. 
But that's how many more in each of those categories Michael Jordan has over LeBron James. I mean, <laughs> it is not even close. It's not a debate. It's not a discussion. It's objective science. It is just <laughs> objective. It's the way it is. Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. He is the quintessential goat. He's the greatest. Uh, and times I've wanted to talk about this with relation to football, and there's always, for Denver folks, we're like, man, Peyton Manning, you know, like, he's the goat, maybe. And it'd be like, Peyton, or is it Brady? And like, we have to like, acknowledge it's probably Brady, but we just don't need to talk about it. We just kind of like back away. We're going to stick with basketball for a little while. You can apply this kind of goat mentality to anything, right? Simone Biles, greatest female gymnast of all time. You take Serena Williams. You can think about your favorite, kind of what you think the greatest band of all time was, the greatest singer, whatever it might be. And when you're thinking about the greatest, how do you have to kind of defend them? If you're going to call somebody the greatest, what you do is you take the accumulation of their achievements, of their accomplishments, of their endeavors, and you stack them up and you weigh them against others and you say, look, they transcend, they rise above, they are better than, greater than, they are the greatest. And we can talk about that with athletes or celebrities or musicians or artists, we can talk about it there, but the reality is we live in a society where we are always stacking people against one another. We're measuring people up and we're kind of stacking ourselves against others, feeling better than some or less than others. And we create these structures in our society where we're always comparing. We're always comparing people. And the way we mostly compare in our current society is through the stacking of achievements or accumulations or possessions or accomplishments of some kind. And it creates a kind of dog-eat-dog world where we bite and devour and climb and compete always trying to be next. In fact, a lot of sociologists will say for a long time throughout history, the Western world was more of what they would call a guilt-innocence culture. And so the idea is we think about kind of our status in society through either we feel innocent and righteous or we do something wrong and we feel guilty. And a part of our kind of effort as human beings in the society is to get away from the guilty feelings into the not guilty feelings. And so most religious conversation would talk about how do you move from guilt towards innocence. And there's something very true about the way the Bible speaks about that movement of what does it mean to be declared righteous, not guilty, through faith in Christ. But most people would say over the past several decades, we've shifted into what is actually common throughout history and common throughout much of the non-Western world is an honor-shame culture. In an honor-shame culture, you're stacking people up. You're comparing and measuring up. And it's less of people feeling guilty, just a lot of people feel less than. A lot of people feel like they don't quite fit in. And the goal is, how do I become acceptable to my society? How do I avoid, if I feel acceptable, not getting rejected or canceled or pushed aside by my society? How do I kind of, if I'm in the society, how do I kind of, kind of climb up the ladder through achievements or accumulation or lifestyle or possessions or degrees or career or connections, whatever it might be? And so we start trying to find some way to keep feeling better. And as much as you kind of do that and try to climb your way up the social ladder, you always feel there's a new referent group that you feel less than somebody else and better than somebody else. And no matter how you fall down, there's always somebody. And so as a society, we're constantly in this anxious experience of feeling like we're always comparing ourselves, always biting and devouring, always trying to lift ourselves up at the expense of others or feeling pushed down at the expense of somebody else. And it leads to a society that's dominated by both pride and shame. Pride and shame, feeling better than or feeling less than, feeling like you're enough, or feeling like you're not enough. And in that space, it's a really toxic environment 
that eats people up. And it's been the way since the very beginning of the Garden of Eden when humanity rejected the reign of God and said no to God's love, no to God's presence, no to the security and the safety and the covenantal love that God has for his created human beings. When we say no to that, we reject his reign, we're pushed out, we push away from his presence. We live in the society always trying to kind of cover our sense of vulnerability up by feeling more than somebody else. And you started right in the beginning with Adam and Eve beginning to blame shift, and then people just trying to claw over one another. And we have felt that over the past few years in ways that have been so stunning in this sort of like society-wide way with tribalism, outrage, canceling each other. If you say this or do this or don't say this or don't say this, who you align with, what you post, what you don't post, what news sites you listen to, what news sites you don't. And, and we kind of just stack everybody up and decide who's worthy of being accepted and loved and in and who's worthy of being rejected and cast out and pushed aside. It's a toxic culture, and it's sort of the way things are in society right now, but it's not the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. It's not the way it's supposed to be in the kingdom of God. In fact, the disciples asked this question in Matthew 18, and Jesus is going to address what does it mean to be a part of his kingdom, a part of his family, a part of his community, and how are we supposed to treat one another, and how are we supposed to think about ourselves as a part of this community. And I'm just going to walk through this passage. Like I said, there's some heavy stuff. We're going to walk through the first few verses and create a framework through which we're going to try to understand how the rest of this stuff fits in. And so look with me, Matthew 18, starting in verse 1. It says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's their question. Who's the greatest? What constitutes greatness? What makes somebody worthy of God's approval? What makes somebody inside the kingdom better than somebody else? Like, what's God looking for? When God's kind of looking around and saying, here's the people in my kingdom, who are the great ones? Who are they? What constitutes greatness? In this passage, even right at the beginning, it says, at that time, what we had just passed last week is Jesus saying, as they're going to draw near to the temple, this is my father's house. I'm his son. I belong here. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to achieve it. I don't have to accomplish anything. And not only does Jesus feel like he belongs in the house of his father, he also says, and Peter, I'm going to pay for you so that you can be a child that's here for free, that the children of God are allowed to be in the father's house, not through their achievements, not through their accomplishments, not through their efforts, not through all the good things they've done, and not by avoiding all the bad things, but because it's inherent in their identity as those who are connected to Jesus, the true Son of God. And in that environment, they're saying, okay, so we're children in the Father's house, we're welcomed in, but what makes us great? And to answer that question, the way that Jesus answers that question will flip not only the values of their society upside down, it flips the values of our society upside down. And the way that he's going to talk about this, he's going to talk about it with a degree of severity, and a weight and a heaviness that kind of ought to captivate all of us. It ought to capture our attention. When Jesus starts talking about life and death, when he starts talking about the way of the kingdom and the way of life and the way of destruction and the way of death, when he starts painting this picture, part of what he's doing is this is deadly serious stuff. That if you keep thinking about the way the world operates and you keep living according to the systems and value structure of the world, it will lead to destruction and Jesus does not want that for any single person in this room. Not one. He has a deep heart for literally every single person in this room that you would know the love of the Father and you know what it means to be a child of God and you know the freedom that comes with that. It really is an invitation to freedom, but it comes with a really kind of terrifying warning. And so we're going to walk through, how does Jesus respond to this question? 
Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Verse 2. It says, In calling to himself a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I want you to picture the scene. Jesus is there. There's a group of disciples around him. He's going to be staying close with his disciples. Not huge crowds at this point. They're moving their way towards Jerusalem over the next month or so where he will ultimately be laying down his life for us. And in that space, they're coming up to him saying, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? And Jesus says, all right, well, the fact that you're asking the question like already shows that they still have an upside-down value system. And so to, to kind of prove a point, he says to them, he calls a child to himself, and he says, hey, buddy, will you come on up here? And this little child comes up. And as the child comes up, the word for child here is this word python. It's this infant-like baby, this small child, maybe toddler, just enough to like hear, just enough to respond. You can almost imagine him like, hey, can I come on up? And the kid comes up and maybe walks away from his mom or dad or her mom or dad and comes up to Jesus. And Jesus starts talking about the identity of this child. Now, as I was thinking about this, just trying to imagine the scene, I feel like as the conversation moves on, when like we start talking about millstones and people drowning and gouged out eyes and hands and feet, you imagine the kid being like, yeah, just like, gonna go back and like grab mom and dad's leg over here because like this got, this got deep. Um, this got deep. So the kid comes up and Jesus says, it's like this kid. If you even want to be in the kingdom, you have to turn and become like this child. Before we talk about greatness, I'm talking about just getting in. Has something to do with turning and becoming like this child. So what does he, what does he mean? What does he mean by turn and become like a child? When we think of children in, in our age, um, we at least purport to really value kids, right? Like you get on social media and you can see everybody posting the picture of their kids. Like, oh my gosh, we got these kids and they're sweet and they're awesome. Like that's just a part of the story, just so everybody knows. There's more to the story of children than cute, sweet, you know, happy Instagram photos. Uh, it's like more challenging. There's more difficulties. There's selfishness. There's all this stuff. But really, Jesus isn't talking about any of those things. A lot of people read this passage and they'll think like, oh, it's this innocence and this free spirit and this kind of like sweet, like genuine trust. And it's like, maybe. What, what, it seems like Jesus is getting more at, he says right here in the passage. Look at, look at what he says. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In the first century in the Middle East, in Greco-Roman world and in Jewish society, children were not seen as cute, sweet little gifts. Weren't seen like that. They were seen as bottom of the ladder, bottom of the barrel in society. In their honor-shame culture, when they stacked people up, you had all sorts of different kind of tiers and criterion, and people of different genders would be stacked differently. People of different ethnicities would be stacked differently. People that had different occupations would be stacked differently. People with different experiences and were around different things and different socioeconomic classes. And they had people stacked up. To get invited into a dinner of somebody that's higher on the social kind of echelon than you is like this huge gift. You're like going up the rung. Like it was nearly like a quantifiable kind of status marker. And at the very bottom, underneath everybody, are the kids. 
They contribute nothing to the family, especially these little ones. They contribute nothing to society. They're mostly a burden. They're mostly kind of taking from, not giving to. And in their society, they were seen as the bottom of the barrel. So when he says, humbles himself like this child, you can think about humility or humbling as a character quality. That's not what this word is aimed at. This word is aimed at a kind of lowly position. Whoever takes a sort of bottom rung position like this child, that's who's allowed in. So what's he getting at? He's getting at total dependence. He's getting at weakness. He's getting at coming with just kind of like an empty-handed trust in the generosity of your parents, the generosity of a father. To get into the kingdom, like the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, I've got nothing. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I can't do anything about this. I look to thee for grace. That's how you come into the kingdom. It's not with your achievements, not with your accolades, not like look at all the good things I did and look at how I've shown up at church and look what I'm doing in society and look at my volunteer hours and look at my faithfulness. Look at the actions that I've done and the other actions I've avoided and look how I stack up and measure. I bet you're pretty happy to have me. He's like, get out. That's not who comes into the kingdom. Who comes into the kingdom is the one who turns and becomes like a child. The word turn here is a Greek word. Underneath that Greek word, there's a Hebraic idea of this word shuv, which is a a turning. It's a returning in in the word where we get repentance. And so the idea is that there's something you are running from, and whoever now turns and retakes this posture as a child is welcomed into the kingdom of God. And in fact, as soon as you're in like a child, he's like greatness. He's not going to stack you up. You're in as a child with dependence, with humility. You don't have to prove that you did anything better than anybody else. You don't have to prove you've done the more of the right things and avoided a bunch of the wrong things and you've been more consistent or more faithful. He's like, when you're my child, you are loved. You are in greatness. Welcome to the kingdom and welcome to the love of your father. Now, what I want to do is actually kind of unpack a little bit of a biblical theology of that moment here to give us an image that I think will frame the rest of the passage. In the very beginning of creation, when God creates humanity, he creates humanity in this experience of intimacy with him. In fact, lots of places in the Bible refer back to Adam and Eve as the first sons and daughters of God, the first children of God. And Adam and Eve, as the children of God, live in the presence of their loving father who created them, who has wisdom, and they're designed, designed to, to get life from him to be nurtured by him, to be guided by him, to be given wisdom, to be instructed, to find love and be secure in his love and to follow his way as a part of this beautiful kingdom that he's invited them into. And into that experience, God creates this garden and he says, all of this is good. You can eat it, enjoy it, it's for you. I just want you to not eat of the fruit of this one particular tree. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not an arbitrary tree. In Hebrew thought, In an ancient Jewish culture, the idea of the knowledge of good and evil was a life stage moment for children in the Hebrew family. Children would get to what they would call the age of the knowledge of good and evil. They'd get to that moment as an adolescent where they're now being declared independent from their parents. Up to the age of the knowledge of good and evil, anything they did, any actions were kind of seen as a part of this family system. And so there's almost even no indictment that could happen. If you got in trouble, if you did something wrong, prior to the age of the knowledge of good and evil, it's like, hey, you're in your family's household. They're going to take responsibility for that. They're yours. They're over you. But once you reach that age, it's essentially saying you now have the ability to sort through on your own what is right 
and what is wrong, and you are now culpable for and accountable for your own actions because you're going to do it your own way. You're now separate and independent. So when Moses is writing about this story and this image of God creating the Garden of Eden, he creates this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Essentially what God is saying is, I do not want you to declare your independence from me. I want you to stay dependent on me, stay close to me, trust my word, obey my voice, follow my instruction, be secure in my love. I will protect you. I will give you life. I will watch over you. Stay here. Into that experience, a liar comes into the garden and the liar says, no, 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 no. There's a different way. He's holding something back from you. Your creator, king, father is holding something back from you. If you really want life, you're going to have to declare independence, grab the fruit of that tree. He doesn't want you to get all the joy that's going to come when you start to do it all by yourself, right? The classic kid line, I'm going to do it by myself. And Adam and Eve decided we're going to do it by ourselves. They buy the lie. They take the fruit of the tree. They eat it. Eve gives it to Adam who's right there with her. He eats it. And they experience a separation from God. And that separation, the Bible talks about as exile. And they began to build their life, a life that's marked now by pain, suffering, a life where they're clawing over one another in shame and in embarrassment. They're devouring one another, creating competitive and destructive and domineering structures that continue to multiply and fill the face of the earth to this day. Now, there are lots of ways, once you've declared your independence, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. There are lots of ways you could do it. You could, lots of ways you could try to build your life. You could try to build your life around your career, your sense of worth and identity. You can try to build your life around possessions. You can try to build your life around comfort and entertainment. You can try to build your life around substances. You can try to build your life by building the perfect family and keeping everything safe and secure and tidy and making sure nobody messes with your perfect family. You can try to build it by getting everybody's approval, becoming the most likable, becoming the most free, becoming the most disciplined, whatever you want. Lots of options. The way is wide. The path is broad. A ton of people are on it. It's that way. In the end of that path, Jesus uses this image of a wide, broad path, a lot of people on it. He says the end of that path is destruction. But that's what God said at the beginning. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, the, de- the day you declare independence from me and say, I'm going to do it by myself. I'm big enough. I'm a big boy now. I can figure this out. I don't need my father anymore. I got this. You will surely die. You are now on the path that is marked by devastation, destruction, pain, and the end of that path is death. It's death. And Jesus says, unless you return this childlike dependence, this childlike humility, this low state of, I tried my own way, I ran after it that way, and it didn't work, and then I ran after it that way, and it didn't work, and I ran after it, and I guess, I guess I should have never declared my independence from you. And I'm coming back with nothing. And just asking for forgiveness and grace and mercy. And he's like, welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the kingdom. And the way Jesus will talk about this image is that this wide, broad path that leads to destruction is juxtaposed with this narrow path that some people are on. But it's not going to be all the people around you. It's not marked by all the people around you in society following faithfully. But it's a narrow path. And that narrow path leads to life. And that's essentially the image that this whole passage is going to be kind of hinging on. When Jesus says, unless you turn. And that's the biblical word that we use often is repent, which is just returning. It's just return. Unless you return to this childlike state of God, I've been trying to do it on my own and it's not working. And I know I've tried to do it on my own like a bajillion times, but like I'm coming back again. It's like, welcome to the kingdom. 
God, I've been trying to do my own my whole life. I've even trying to go to church to make myself feel better about myself, and it's not feeling better. I don't even have, like, these religious things that, like, I, I feel like even that was crushing me. And you're like, yeah, it's never about religion. It's about returning to me. It's about coming to me as a, as a child with dependence, with weakness, with need and desperation for his mercy. And you're welcomed. You're welcomed and beloved by your Father. This whole passage, the whole thing, if you're to get your mind around the image, is about God's heart for everybody on that broad path to join this path to life. Every single person. And for those that have already turned and they're on that path to life and all of the things that tempt us to turn back away and go back to the other ways of life with a broad path and all the people like, I wish I had that and I want to follow Jesus, but that, that's fun and I wish I could go back to those practices and I wish I could have that life. And we keep turning again and again. God's heart is that we would return yet again to him. He is pursuing us with mercy and grace. And all of the things that threaten our ability to continue to stay in faith, following Jesus, following him, trusting in the Father's love, trusting in his grace, everything that threatens that faith, God takes deadly seriously. Deadly seriously. And that's what happens here in the passage. Look with me in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Like once you get your mind around that I want you to come into my kingdom as humble, dependent children. And I don't play the status game. I don't play the ladder game. I don't do that game. And so it creates in you a heart of love and welcome to others who come along too. So you see other people coming into the kingdom and they're confessing their brokenness and their need for God. And you're saying, man, welcome. Me too. Right? That great line that C.S. Lewis talks about where true friendship starts is like the, oh, you too, I thought I was the only one. Like, oh, like you've struggled and failed and felt broken and tempted and really wrestled with life and made a bunch of, me too, me too, welcome to the kingdom. We're just a bunch of kids learning about the love of our Father, welcome. When you receive people in that way, you receiving, you're getting the picture, you're getting the idea of what God is all about. Look at verse six. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him, better to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. At this point, when Jesus starts talking about the little ones, he's talking about all human beings who have turned to him in humble, dependent, desperate faith. And he's saying when, when somebody gets in the way of somebody pursuing the love of God, coming near to the love of the Father, it would be better for him. You know God's heart towards people that create difficulty and challenges in people following him faithfully. He's saying it would be better for you if a giant millstone, a millstone was like a big stone, kind of uh, like cylindrical, kind of wheel-like rock that would be used. There's handheld ones that could crush grain and corn. And then there were giant ones that a mule or a donkey would kind of like walk around and kind of push and it'd crush all the grain on the floor, all the corn on the floor. And Jesus is like, let's take one of those big ones wrap it around your neck, take the boat out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee and toss you in. That would be preferable. That's how, like, fiery God's love for his kids is. That's how fiercely he wants to protect his kids. He's a fierce protection of his kids. It's hard for me not, especially on a Mother's Day, to think about kind of the mama bear mentality. You know what I'm talking about? You ever around a mom whose kids are threatened or struggling? It's like you see something like, whoa. Like my wife has a real mama bear streak in her that I love. It's normally like when my kids are in maybe a hard spot, so that's not cool. But when I see her, I'm like, oh, buckle up. Like, buckle up. Because there's a ferocity 
There's a strength and a passion to protect these kids, to fight for these kids, to make sure nothing is going to damage or harm these kids. And so many of you have experienced that or you've embodied that. That's a part of the heart of God for his children. That mama bear kind of like fierce protector of his kids. He says, if somebody gets in, when my, when my kids come to me and they're like, finally, I'm like, I'm running all my ways. I've been trying all these things and finally I'm admitting it's not working and it's really hard for me. It's really humbling to admit that I've like run in the wrong direction for most of my life and I'm now coming for mercy and coming for grace and, and I've been following you and then I'm like struggling again and I came back and I confessed that and then, and then somebody else comes along and just kind of pushes you away, rejects your vulnerability, makes you feel like an idiot for talking out loud and, and you realize, oh man, they feel like they look at you with shame or condescension. It's like maybe in, among the people of God, I'm not allowed to be honest about my brokenness and my need. Like, and you kind of like, instead of staying in that place of dependence and desperation and need for God, which is where we're all supposed to be, where we all truly are, you like kind of back out like, okay, that, man, that God's heart is activated. There's a ferocity in that. It's not what he wants for his people. He wants his people, his community to be a place where people can come empty. People can come weak. People can come weary. People can come with mistakes and regrets and issues. And we're just like, welcome to the club. Welcome to this community. He loves us. Can you believe he loves us? He loves me. He loves you. He loves us. It's incredible. And now we can like talk about our failures and faults as things that he's growing and changing along the process of a journey without feeling like, ooh, ah, they, no, you, you know, ah, get out of here, you didn't say that right, or you didn't do this right, or you didn't align with me on that issue exactly right, and like, ugh, you know, and it's God hates that, hates it, and it marks so much of even Christian society today, biting and devouring, killing the community of grace that God wants for his kids. He hates it, hates it. And so he says this in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. All of these uses, there's three uses of temptations to sin and, uh, and then three other uses of these like, particular stumbling blocks, these, these different temptations. All these words come from this root word, scandalizo, where we get the word scandalize. And it just means like stumbling blocks, things that lead people astray. So people are supposed to be like coming and following Jesus with humility and dependence, needing mercy and grace, veering away and coming back and veering away and coming back. All the things that cause people to turn aside and turn away are these stumbling blocks. He says, in the world, there's going to be lots of that. It's sort of inherent in the way things are in the broken world. It's inherent. When he says necessary, the word is just like, it's sort of like, part of the fabric of society in this age of human history. It's, just a, it's a part of the way things are. And he grieves that that's the way the world is, that there are temptations and things in the world. If you're just going to follow the current of the river of society, it is pulling you that way, hard, fast. It's rapids, white water. I mean, if you just go kind of like coast, everything around you, all of our societal structures, most of our societal values are things that are going to pull you away from the way of God's kingdom. That grieves the heart of Jesus. Woe to the world. All these temptations to turn aside. It's the way it is, but woe, listen to this one, but woe to the one by whom that temptation comes. Like if you are placing things in there, if you're actively putting stuff into this world and the society or into your gospel community or into our church community and we're doing things that are damaging people, the heart of Jesus is like grieved at that reality. Grieved at that reality. 
He's hungry for us to follow him, to stay on this path of humility, dependence, desperation, need, mercy, a path where we learn to enjoy his forgiveness and his grace and his steadfast love. Verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame with two hands or two feet than to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's going to be better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying is there are things in the world that are going to be tempting you to fall away. There are going to be people who their actions and interactions, their culture makes you want to fall away. That grieves his heart. There's also stuff within you. There are things you want, things you crave, temptations you listen to, lies you buy into, things you have a habit of turning away from God to go to again and again and again. And Jesus says, just like it grieves my heart to see people that get in the way of my little kids coming to me, and I say, let's tie a millstone around their neck and throw them to the sea. In the same way, if there's something in you, it's time to get deadly serious about it. It's time to get deadly serious about the things in my life that keep me from walking faithfully with Jesus, enjoying his love, enjoying his presence, trusting in his wisdom. I, as a person, am so tempted by so many things about the way of this world. I want to accumulate things. I want people to like me. I want to be secure. I want to have all these experiences that the world has and everybody seems to be like high-fiving as they're kind of building a life apart from God. Not that any of those things are inherently wrong, but there's so many things in me that would want to like turn away to kind of run after like the life of the world. That in me is a deadly desire. It is a deadly desire. It is a huge threat to my faith in Jesus. For me personally, I get in these moments where my default MO in life is busy, 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 do, do, do to try to like retain control of my little life and my little world and keep everything and keep everybody happy and make sure. And I get so busy and I forget that there's a God who reigns and is good and doesn't need me to hold the whole world together by my power, which I clearly just can't do anyways. And so just like, but I try and I get so busy that I forget about him. That propensity to forget about God and to turn back to my own strength, that's the I can do it by myself version of me that is on the road to destruction. And God says, Gary, it's time to get deadly serious about your propensity to self-reliance. It's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. What is it for you? Commitment to building your career and getting to the next stage, the next stage, your kind of nearly idolatrous pursuit of that next stage of life, the spouse or the kids or whatever. Like, it's the only thing. That's the only thing that'll give me life and happiness is that next stage. It's like, hey, there are gifts there, desires that are okay. When they become everything and God ceases to be the giver of satisfaction, the giver of joy, the giver of life, and now it's this thing, that's a turning away. What is it in your life? Maybe it's habits, it's practices. When things get hard and go difficult, I start jumping to these substances or these behaviors or these sexual pursuits or these exploits or these desires for vacation or these numbing kind of escape agents. What are the escape agents that you keep every time it's hard and you're struggling through the temptations that are on the path and the difficulties? You hit the eject button because it doesn't feel good and you find some place they're like, ah, this feels better. I'm on this vacation. I'm spending money. I'm eating this food. I'm drinking these substances. I'm doing this substance over here, drinking the, like whatever it is to get away from the feelings. That stuff is going to kill you. It'll crush you. doesn't mean all of the things are inherently bad, but when you start choosing, instead of coming again to God for de- with dependence and desperation and need, to hit eject buttons and to kind of find some path to escape, instead of turning to him and saying, God, I'm a little kid and I'm 
I'm on this path and it's hard and it's overwhelming and I need you. I need your love. I need security. I need you to give me peace in the midst of chaos. I need you to give me hope in a dark season. I need you to help me be forgiving to this person who hurt me. I need you to help me offer forgiveness to somebody who's asking. I, I, I need whatever it might be. I need your help. And the things in us that are hard for us to let go of threaten us deeply. And God wants us to, to take it deadly seriously. I don't know if you remember Aaron Ralston. It's 2003. He's from Denver. He was hiking in Utah, the slot canyons in Utah by himself. Never a good idea for the record. Never a good idea. And, uh, and he fell, dislodged a boulder. The boulder bounced down and jammed his rock, uh, his arm against the kind of canyon wall. And he was stuck there. And he couldn't get it out and tried and tried and tried. He thought he was going to die. Had to go through a lot of stuff. But eventually decided that he was going to cut off his own arm. And now this is going to be gory, but Jesus did it first, for the record. <laughs> he said it first. Uh, and he, he did it. He took his pocket knife and he cut through his arm and broke his bone and wrenched his arm out and left. And, and when looking back at that moment, you can watch 127 Hours, right? Remember that one, James Franco? Or you can read it from the book. I think it's Between the Rock and a Hard Place, which is funny. Uh, it's a funny title. Uh, but he says, I didn't feel like I lost my arm. I felt like I gained my life. And that's the moment I think a lot of us are in, where it's like there are things that are threatening our soul, and it might feel like it'd be hard, it'd be humbling. What would people think about me if I was honest about this struggle? What would they know? What would they think about me if I was honest about my insecurities, my fears, where I run for safety and satisfaction and joy and pleasure? What would they think about me if they knew the substances that I've been using or if they kind of knew the doubts I have? What would they think about me if they knew this stuff about me? Man, I guess, I guess they might not think you're at the top of the ladder anymore. Maybe, maybe you'd be at the bottom of the ladder. You know who loves people at the bottom of the ladder? Jesus. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The heart of God is for us in this space, and I think there are things that threaten our soul. And what we see at the end of this passage is how hungry he is for his people. Look with me at the last couple of verses. He says, see that none of you despise one of these little ones. Like, don't despise them as they come to me. For I tell you that in heaven, there are angels. Oh, we see the face of my father who's in heaven. There's a lot to that. It's not your standard guardian angel kind of like uh, cultural thoughts. But there is a sense that there are heavenly beings that are paying attention to us and ministering to us, interceding for us, pleading before the father on our behalf as we follow him faithfully. It's not the main thrust of the passage. I'm going to move past it. He says this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's like God's got this big old family and people are following him. He's so excited about all of his kids following him and one of them goes astray, and it's not like he's like, well, at least I got 99 others, you know. He's like, I am so hungry for the one. You're here. You're good. I'm going to chase this child of mine down, and I'm going to go with them to the dark places. I'm going to pursue, and I'm going to find them, and I'm going to pick them up and put them on my shoulders like a good shepherd with a lost sheep, and I'm going to carry them back, and I'm throwing a party because of how much I love this one individual sheep, how much he loves you. 
how committed he is to you. So when you feel conviction in your heart about something that's going on, bitterness that you're hanging on to, resentment, complacency, all the things that you feel, and you don't even want to soften your heart, you don't want to let God speak in there, you want to hold on to your little thing and keep it tight and keep it safe, and, and God's right now convicting you. That is his pursuit of you. It's his passion for you. It's his love for you. It's his faithfulness to you. He's chasing you down. He doesn't want a single one of us to run towards destruction. Not one of us. This is the heart of God towards his kids, and it's the heart of God that moved him to send his son into the world. That on our path towards destruction, he sent Jesus into the world to pursue us like a good shepherd pursuing his lost sheep, like a good father chasing after his lost children. And he sent his son into the world. The the most famous passage in the whole Bible gets right at the heart of it. God loved the world like this. He sent his son into the world so that whoever would believe in him, whoever would turn to him, would not perish, but would have everlasting life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it, to save it. And that's the invitation for all of us today. And we return again to the love of our Father with dependence, with humility, with repentance, but also with faith that he sees us, he loves us, and he's the one that can give us life. He's the one the only one who can give us life. And there's nowhere else to go. Let's pray that you do that among us today. Jesus, we come right now and we pray for your mercy and your grace to help us right now in our time of need. I imagine in this room um, people like me who have things that you're convicting us about right now, things where Like there's a heat in our heart. There's like a tension. There's something we feel. There's something you're doing, and it's scary. It's scary, something we've maybe been hanging on to for a while. Would you help us to be the kind of people that would metaphorically cut off the hands and the feet, gouge out the eyes, and say, I'd rather humble myself and face the music of what these activities or values or behaviors or passions or dispositions, what they've done to me. I want to be honest about that, and I want to come with humility, and I want to enter life, the life of the kingdom. I want to enter into the love of the Father. I want to, I want to, I want to follow Jesus faithfully. Holy Spirit, would you help people? Would you help us to be those who turn with dependence, with humility? And would you bring transformation, hope, and life into our community, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.